Welcome back to the Most Heated Effort Podcast, episode number 10, How Financial Therapy Can Help Everyone, with my guest, Lindsay Brian Podvin, author, speaker, and financial therapist. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Hello, this episode was originally recorded on April 21st, 2020. The word financial therapy might make us think, well, I don't need therapy or financial therapy is not for me. But really and truly, after this conversation with Lindsay, I'm confident financial therapy is for everyone. Because as we discussed in this episode, it's about understanding our money mindsets and looking at our money tendencies and asking ourselves, is this serving me? Is this helping me? And how much is it helping me if it is? We also talk about all the different tangled layers that create our money story. And when we don't look at them, how it clouds our financial decisions and our our judgments with our money. But Lindsay really shares with us how when we start to untangle these money stories, we really start to develop clarity and balance around our money. We also talk about developing value statements as a guide to our financial decisions as it helps create more fulfillment and joy in how we spend our money. We talk about the power of using positive reframes with our money so that we can create a more balanced lifestyle. And we talk about how partners or spouses can start to create or maintain their healthy financial relationship with each other and their money and how communication is so critical to this and much, much, much more. I promise financial therapy can help everyone. And after this episode, I'm sure you'll agree with me. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have Lindsay Brian Podvin from Michigan. And I'm going to read a bio for Lindsay. So I'm just going to read it off of a piece of paper here because I think it's important that we understand Lindsay's background and her perspective. So Lindsay is a biracial female social worker turned financial therapist, author, and speaker. As the first financial therapist in Michigan, She talks about money in a way that doesn't make other people feel gross, which we all can appreciate. (laughs) Her services aren't accessible to all, so she volunteers for the circle of Wash, maybe you can help me out here, Wash. Yeah, Washtenaw. Washtenaw County, Mm -hmm. a program that aims to break the cycle of of generational poverty, which I think it would be good to touch on Mm -hmm. because I also have some volunteer work, I think, in line, and I think it's good for all financial planners, therapists to give their time. Lindsay also holds a master's degree in social work from the University of Michigan, a bachelor's degree in sociology from Michigan State University. She is the author of the book, Financial Anxiety Solutions, which I did purchase on Amazon. It's coming. (laughs) Which is a self-paced workbook to help you stop stressing about money by applying therapy techniques to your relationship with money. Lindsay's work has been featured on podcasts, blogs, articles, and more. She's the founder of Mind Money Balance, where she helps high-income earning couples strengthen their relationship with money using financial psychology. So thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here, Sean. Yeah. I thought I'd start off with uh, just through some email exchanges. I I learned we have a couple things in common. One is uh, we were traveling the world around the same time, if I'm correct, you were in 2008, 2009. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, we both grossly overpaid for a concert ticket. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Mine was Bruce Springsteen. Why don't you just share with everybody, I think this helps the travel and Mm -hmm. your story about your tickets, give a frame to how you got into a career with money and if those experiences kind of led you or nudged you along the way. Oh, yeah, they totally did. So I graduated my undergrad um, degree. I think you guys call it university. Yeah, University, yeah. Um, (laughs) So I finished university in 2008 when the economy hadn't yet crashed. So I got a job in marketing, which I knew nothing about. 
never had taken a business course or a marketing course, but you could get any job so long as you had a bachelor's degree. That's the world that we were living in. So I got bachelor's a degree. sociology and in marketing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. A bachelor's in sociology, which is like the most liberal of liberal arts degrees <laughs> you can get, and then went into marketing. And I had a very, this is a tricky, tricky world that we live in now. Because if I look back, I'm like, wow, I had a very abundant mindset with my money. I was certain that whatever I spent would just come right on back. But really, I was naive. Let's just like call it what it was. There was no abundant mindset going on at that point in my life. But as I started out my career trajectory, all my expenses were paid. In this marketing gig that I had, they covered my phone. They covered my vehicle. I had no living expenses because I lived out of a hotel. So the cash that was coming in, I had nothing to spend it on except for fun stuff. So I would... <laughs> one weekend I was in New York City for work and in one night, mind you, I'm 22 years old, I dropped $500 going out, enjoying my life, uh, spoiling. My sister was visiting me that weekend, spoiling her rotten and just like being a cool older sister. <laughs> I also bought tickets to see Radiohead in Amsterdam that I wasn't oh. able to go because I then, so I bought the tickets to Radiohead on like a Friday and on Sunday I got this marketing job. So I wasn't able to go. And then after the marketing job was done, it was a contracted position. They offered for me to stay on. Meanwhile, the economy had crashed. I had no concept of what that meant. And I said, no, thank you. I don't like this job. I'm just going to go find something else. And before I go find something else, I'll go travel the world as you know we do. Mm -hmm. So I went to Europe and Asia by myself for about three months and spent every dollar that I'd earned in that marketing job, came back and thought, you know, I'll just go find a job. They were so easy to come by. And of course that didn't happen. It was now 2009 and I went back to serving and bartending, you know, no, no shame there, you know, working happily and, and thankful to have a job, but just total... I was so, so naive about money and really learned a lot of lessons. And I'm thankful that I was able to get a job again, even though it wasn't like maybe a corporate style job, but yeah. I was really thankful that I had that. So my money story kind of like runs the gamut, but that's like, that's like a two year window yeah. of what was going on in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting though. We go to university, we take all the arts, we take all these courses, we have no money. Mm -hmm. usually. And then all of a sudden we, as your case, we get boom, all this money. And I mean, going from zero to like 30 to 40 to 50,000, it's, it's a massive increase, but we've never been told how to spend money. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we've heard books on how to make money, maybe investments, but really, truly like it's the spending side that I feel really differentiates how we can feel and control that money relationship. So anyways, it's just, it's fascinating to me, but I want to touch on something. I was going to talk about this later, but I might as well now you've graduate, you go to Europe. Have you seen Radiohead since, by the way? No, I know. Oh. Isn't that so sad? That's been like over a decade. Yeah. <laughs> Growing up though, what, if you don't mind sharing, what was yeah. the money story in your household? For example, when you look back at your, your household, could you put your finger on it now if money was a source of stress, of something that was ignored, something that the, the household chased? Yeah, I'm really fortunate that we were we were middle to upper middle class. Um, mm -hmm. We, my mom was a nurse, and her husband, my adoptive dad, he was a physician. I'm one of five girls. We, the oldest, and we grew up going on big annual vacations every year. We lived in a nice home. We went to good schools. We had clothes, we had food, and we were told constantly that we needed to be fortunate and cognizant of how abnormal it was to have access to that type oh. of lifestyle. My mom was really good at narrating what was going on with our money. Anytime she went to the bank, she would say, Hey, this is what I'm doing. I'm, I'm depositing money or I'm taking money out or I'm putting money into a CD. And she would walk me through like what the interest rates were. And wow. when I first got like a babysitting job, she always made sure that a portion of that money went into a savings account that was earmarked for university. So I had a lot of 
good personal finance education, in my opinion. And also, I mean, even though when when you're told you're fortunate, you're privileged, it's another thing to finally understand it. And I don't think I understood what that meant until I was in my early 20s and went, wow, like, yes, I can go out there and I can hustle. I'd had a job from the time I was, you know, 14 years old. So I've always worked. But, you know, it's a different, to your point earlier, it's a different level of responsibility and experience when you're no longer living at home or living at school um, and you're doing your own thing. So I had a, a lot to learn, actually, even though I had a pretty healthy financial education. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. And uh, I've found through just my profession, our different our articles and research that often, like say our financial situation was quite affluent growing up it might not always be a positive lesson that it teaches the kids. Cause sometimes, I mean, mom and dad might not even realize the privileged state that they're in and that can just cause a further problem. So I guess it's so interesting that your mom would be teaching you so much about it. I'm kind of curious about that. And mm-hmm. now you working with in a financial therapy and we're going to get to exactly what financial therapy is, yeah, but how sure. do you think that lesson has benefited you? Because your parents could have just, you know, they had a totally different perspective where totally. instead of teaching you about the privilege being like, well, these people should pull the bootstraps up and yeah. go to school and become a physician. Yeah. So how has that helped you a with yourself and then also with clients? Yeah, I, I've been super, super fortunate to be able to have access to exactly that, to know that I am privileged and come from a lot of it. My maternal grandfather, so my mom's dad, was not did not come from uh, money. He ran away from home as a teenager because they were so mm-hmm. poor, and he wanted to go find work. So he he had really preached the importance of working, and he went to school all on scholarships. So for him, the money story that he had internalized was education is a pathway to financial stability. So then my mom was raised in that type of household. So when we grew up in a place where we weren't living in scarcity, where we didn't have to worry about how the bills were going to get paid, she was very aware of what her dad had gone through and made sure that we also knew that. So I I am just like so, so thankful that I had that pathway to understand. And I didn't get the messaging of like, well, people who are poor just don't work hard, right? I never got that Mm -hmm. message. And I never got the message that there was any type of job that isn't worthwhile. You know, I'd always gotten the message that all jobs are meaningful and work is important regardless of what the job is. Just show up and, and do a good job. So I got a lot of really healthy messages there. And then in terms of how that helps me with my clients, I think it helps me to remember that we all have layers of our money story. For sure, we soak up what we learn about money as kids. You know, most research shows that by the time we're eight years old, we have our beliefs about money set, mm-hmm. which is like mind-blowing for yeah. most people. But it's it's generational. So it's not, you know, our parents had their perspectives on money from what they learned from their parents and from their communities and from their neighborhood. So it's layered and it's deep and it does go back and it's historical. So that always helps me work with my clients. Even if I see, like I mostly work with high earning couples. So a lot of them are like, oh, I just want to talk about what's going on right now. And my job is to say, okay, well, like, let's rewind the clock and go back to when you were a kiddo or tell me a little bit about what your parents thought about money. And I'll sometimes get pushback, right? Because like, oh, why does that matter? I need to talk about budgeting now, or I need to talk about investing in retirement today. I don't want to talk about what happened to me as a child, but we are all shaped by those early experiences, which is why I love talking about money stories. Mm -hmm. You're making me think of this thing that I often see in the personal finance. And I I hear about this in the United States, about people becoming more stressed about money and becoming more in debt. I've seen the debt clock when I've been in New York. Mm -hmm. Information right now is so abundant. Like I can go Google and I can get any podcast, any information I want for free about personal finance. But yet, certainly in Canada, I know our statistics is 42% of Canadians report money as the top stressor in their life, followed by a relationship and work. And the undertone between those two is money. Yeah. But yet Canadians and America, I'm, I'm making an assumption, Canadian, mm-hmm. well, I'll just talk Canadians. We're becoming more and more in debt, mm. but we have more information. So what do you think the issue is, is that we have all this information, but we're not using it. And maybe it's to your layers example. Yeah, I think it it comes down to a very human concept of 
decision fatigue and an inability to kind of think forward. So I'll kind of break down each of those. So decision fatigue is the idea that we make you know, tens of thousands of decisions every day from if we're going to brush our teeth first or take a shower first to Mm -hmm. what we're going to eat for lunch to which meetings we need to schedule. We are inundated with decisions that we have to make all the time. And in the information age in which we live, to your point, there are so many podcasts, so many blogs, so many books, so many conferences, so many webinars that we can consume. And it can become overwhelming with Mm -hmm. what is the next best choice for me. Because the other thing about personal finance is it is personal, but each personal finance guru is going to tell you, you have to do this first or you have to do that first. So you're getting mixed messages if you're consuming all of this content. So we get overwhelmed and then we kind of get frozen with so many potential ideas. So that's one reason that I think that it's hard for us to make smart or wise behavior changes that are, are are aligned with our money. And then when it comes to the debt piece, I think another way that our brains are wired to keep us safe is actually super detrimental when it comes to debt. So this is the idea that, you know, back in our hunter gatherer days, we would have to move from place to place. And the, the theory goes that our brain's underestimate the amount of time some a task will take so that we actually do that task. So the idea is that if it was going to be, you know, a 20 kilometer walk and to get from one location to another location, we might've been like, Oh, that's a hike. I don't really want to do it. But if our brains were like, Oh, it's pretty short. It's really only like a 5k walk. Then we could at least start getting going on that momentum and then make it to our next uh, campsite, so to speak. I did not know that was an actual thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pull this out and make sure my wife listens to that because she says I, can, I take on too many things and my timelines never act up. But I mean... No, it's, it's evolutionary. It's hardwired in me, yeah. It is. Sorry. It's totally hardwired in you. Um, and, and there are some theories as to why certain people run late all the time is that their brains are more kind of stuck in that mode of like, oh, it'll only take me five minutes to get there you know, from point A to point B. And sure, there's some truth. It'll only take you five minutes to get there, but you still have to like pack up your bag and get in your car and deal with traffic and find parking, you know, so we underestimate the amount of time it takes for us to get things done. So all of these things that have been built into our brains to help us survive don't really work well when it comes to money because money is such a bizarre, complicated concept that the the way that our brains are wired to work doesn't really line up very well with the concept of money. Yeah. And I think that is such a, a good analogy going back to your money story or peeling back all the layers because mm-hmm. I, I so often see people so frustrated, like I just can't make this. But if we don't take the time to go back and under, mm-hmm. like recognize that our brain has these yeah. like in, innate disadvantages, then it just, I feel like people just start beating themselves up and then do that ostrich effect of sticking their head in the sand. Yeah, absolutely. So this brings me to your role as a financial therapist. In your bio, you talked about how you use financial psychology. Mm -hmm. It's a relatively new term. Mm -hmm. Why don't you explain what financial psychology is and then just how financial therapy can, uh, you're the expert, but I feel it can help everybody, not just... Thanks. I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think financial therapy can help everybody as well. So financial psychology is the idea that money is inherently psychological and emotional, right? To your point, we have so many people saying things like, oh, I just can't save my money or I just can't seem to ask for a raise. So we have these, these things that just continue to come up. And my belief with financial psychology is that if we understand the mindset, the emotions, and the behavior behind our relationship with money, it makes it easier for us to engage with our money in a healthy way. And one of the biggest psychological barriers I see to people engaging with their money is anxiety, feeling so, so financially anxious that they end up on one side of this pendulum of either avoidance, you know, sticking your head in the sand because it's so anxiety provoking to look at my money or talk about my money or they kind of go on to the other end of kind of 
chronically chasing perfection in their money. So that goes to the people who are always consuming content on money or they're constantly refreshing their bank accounts mm-hmm. or they're you know always looking for the best ways to get a, a good interest rate on their savings account, right? So there's like perfection on one end and then procrastination on the other end that tends to show up. And that's why I love helping people sort through their financial anxiety. Again, helping them understand that a little bit of anxiety is okay, but when it's so high, we can't engage with money in a healthy way. So we have to dial it down so that we can not get stuck in procrastination or perfection with our money. Right. And so say someone's listening and they they relate to procrastination or that obsessive, like, oh, I got to get the best interest interest rate. I spend 14 hours and I lowered my mortgage payment by like $12. Mm-hmm. If we start doing the work and figuring out that, okay, these are tendencies. What is your suggestion for people? Because sometimes I get individuals saying like, you know what, my dad was used money as a symbol of status. My dad did this or my parents fought about money. Now I'm just hyper like focused on saving and I don't know if mm-hmm. this is good. So I guess if someone recognizes that they have this tendency, what do you suggest they do? Can you avoid it altogether? Can you get rid of it? What, what do we do? Yeah, good question. So one is just acknowledging it, going, wow, I'm starting to feel really anxious about my money. I'm starting to notice my behaviors are kind of tipping towards obsessiveness or tipping towards avoiding. And then asking yourself, is this helping me? Because sometimes those behaviors can help, but sometimes they go too far and they're no longer helpful. So asking like, how much is it helping me to save every penny that I earn? Well, it's helping me a little bit because I feel pretty secure, but it's not super helpful when it comes to maintaining friendships that sometimes, not today when we're recording this, include like going out and having dinner with friends, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's not super helpful if all we're doing is so obsessed with saving that we're avoiding engaging with our money to your point of spending it on experiences. So helping people kind of understand how is it helping you and how is it hurting you and kind of running through a little, I I guess it would be like a pros and cons list Mm -hmm. of is saving every penny helping you? Yes. It's helping me in these hands full of ways, but is it harming you? Yeah, actually it is. You know, my friends have now dubbed me as cheap and they kind of write me off and they've stopped inviting me out places because they know that I'm not going to go anywhere where we have to spend money. Right. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about at what cost is it impacting you to behave in that way with your money? Mm -hmm. I guess another thing uh, outside of expensive tickets we have in common is I've been called cheap my entire life. And <laughs> and it used to bother me. Yeah. I, w- I would take offense. I'm like, no, I'm not cheap. Uh, I live in like a, Alberta. It's kind of a rural province. And there's a saying that there are farmers here where I'm not a farmer. I don't know how to farm. But uh, there were cheap Ukrainians. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, background is Ukrainian. And it used to bother me. And like, I'm not cheap. I just don't want to spend my money on the stuff you're spending on. I remember going out, I used to play hockey and we'd go out for beers and I'd get a beer and everyone get like these big food and I get a plate of French fries for like $5. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what are you so cheap? And so I tell that because over the last like 10 years and regardless that I have a, a CFP, I consume so much personal finance information. I get confused about this stuff all the time because mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I'm a human and yeah. <laughs> you talk to us about we have these like preset disadvantages around money. But it was kind of, I, I, I mentioned I went traveling. So I went traveling that helped me realize that, wow, I can spend my money in a different way. My wife and I ended up spending over a year traveling. We only spent $33,000 for a year. And that like cracked open the door, something that I was really naive about. And I, I ended up getting a corporate job and just it all, that little glimpse fell away because I fell into the rat race. But when I got, tried to get back out of there, that's when I realized that, and thanks to Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, I've like started adopting the financial why. Mm-hmm. And I started realizing that I just like spending my money on experiences. I get to use that as a lens to say no to that expensive plate of food with those hockey guys way back in the day. But it, it's helped me realize that, well, not cheap. I just don't spend my money where other people want uh, my money to be spent. So with all the couples and the people you work with, how important do you think it's for people to develop this, like whatever you want to call it, financial why or a guiding principle? I mean, businesses have mission statements mm-hmm. to why they make money. Mm-hmm. How important do you think it is that, in, let's talk individually. Individually, we have this guiding principle of why we make money. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree that we absolutely need to tap into our, I, I would call it a value statement, but it's yeah. the same thing, right? What is the purpose of money for you? Is it to provide you with experiences? Is it to provide you with security and safety and comfort? Is it to help you get closer to family and friends who live across the country? You know, thinking about what are the things that are important to you and then spending your money in accordance with those values is going to bring you a much better emotional return on investment. So we know that the research shows that in most cases, spending money on experiences is going to be better for you unless, and there's always an asterisk, mm -hmm. unless you are spending on an object that really means a lot to you. So I right. give the example all the time. My partner is a huge BMW fanatic. I did not understand it until we met and married, um, but now I do. And I had to like understand that every time he gets into one of those cars and turns it on and hears like the German engineered dinging sounds that <laughs> come along with said vehicle, he's going to get an immense amount of joy from it, but I won't. So it does actually make sense for him to put his money there yeah. to you know, buy those little accessories and to buy the tuning kits and to spend the weekends cleaning it up, he is going to get a ton of joy and value out of that particular purchase. So in most cases, experiences are going to win, except unless you have a specific hobby or something like that, that brings you a lot of joy, then for sure, spend your money there. So on that point, and this is something that, um, I mean, as a financial planner, we don't learn about how to identify individuals' values, <laughs> well, deep values, like below the line of the water, so to speak. So that's what it sounds like you're touching here is these value statement. I've often found that it's hard to engage people to like dig deep and go below that water line, so to speak. But my question is specific actually around your husband. If someone's listening, how do they differentiate between like, I want that BMW because it's like a hobby and that smell and that German engineering just like lights me up versus yeah. I have this old money script that's unconsciously playing in my head that says you're not good enough or, you know, growing up you drove a beat up car. So now this is like your way to like kind of do a peacock effect. Yeah, totally. Do you know how someone could like differentiate between those two? Yeah, I think it's that's such a good question. And I think that's where a lot of people get tangled up because they're like, oh, well, I, I love Gucci. It brings me joy. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, does it? Yeah. And it might, right? But what I'd like to ask them about is kind of a visualization exercise or an actual exercise of like sitting in that vehicle and what does it feel like for you? What is coming up for you? And if to your point, you're having these stories come up of like, oh my gosh, I wasn't good enough or I couldn't afford this thing. And now here I am those types of things are coming from a place of negativity and scarcity of like, there's never enough. I couldn't afford it. This isn't for people like me. And you're trying to kind of prove an old script wrong versus getting in the car and going, wow, I feel so at peace. I feel so calm. I feel so joyful and happy. So tapping into those emotions and those feelings with those purchases. So I always encourage my clients to think about what does it feel like every time you engage with your money? So you can start kind of getting a better sense of what your relationship with money is. So every time you pay for groceries, Every time your paycheck gets deposited, every time you look at your retirement account, checking in with the thoughts and feelings that are going on during that engagement to get a better sense of, is this more of a positive feeling? Is this more of a negative feeling? And starting to kind of label it and associate it as such. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that. It's just back on the car thing. In the book, Happy Money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They talk about yeah. cars. And, but they, they do talk about how there's that dopamine rush when they first buy the car, but yeah. um, in their studies and, and not everybody, but when they, they um, research how they felt, they actually were starting to feel stressed that they had this car and it wasn't worth it as much. So I guess that goes to your point of mm -hmm. if you still get in that car and when you turn mm -hmm. it on, if it's still making you feel like, Hey, this is why I trade my time for money. I want to buy this car. Then I think mm -hmm. that's, yeah, the key is just looking into those emotions. Yeah, exactly. Because I think you're right. When we buy that, I mean, I've never bought a Gucci purse, but if I did, <laughs> you wouldn't know if you actually reflect. It took this moment to reflect you. It was like, am I, am I doing this because I want to walk down the street and like, mm -hmm. let everybody look at me? And I think that's so important and it's hard. I think it takes reflective work. I think it takes time to like get to that value statement. I don't know if you've kind of covered this already, but when you work with clients, what is the a good way to start discovering, doing the work, so to speak, to get to that value statement? 
Yeah. So for sure, I like to talk to people about engaging with those things, but I also like to ask them, like, tell me some of your favorite purchases of your life. Mm. Right. And, and oftentimes we do have them for a lot of people. It's like the first time they were able to buy something with their own money, right? The first time they bought concert tickets when they were 16 and they were like, yes, I bought them with my own money. And then tapping into like, why, why did that feel good? Why that show, you know, asking those types of questions or, oh my gosh, we, we, we put a sunroom in our house and we've been thinking about it for years. And when we finally did it, now we spend every weekend out there and it's so nice and we use that space and blah, blah, blah. So asking people really eliciting from them, where do they get joy of, of spending their money to start that conversation? And then you can, you know, always ask the flip side of that, which are like, what are some purchases you really regret? And people also have those too. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I mean, essentially you're getting at that value statement without scary people way of being like, all right, let's talk about your values. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Cause everyone's like, Oh, I roll uh, next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I really like how you, you've used this word a few times now, it's joy. Mm. And I think it's so important that we remember that hey, we're here to experience joy to some degree. And yeah, I, I think that's a great word you've been using. So I want to move on to your specialty couples and money. Marriage in and itself can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Money, as we know, is uh, difficult when we're talking individually. You put those things together, I feel like uh, you're creating a concoction that uh, is just bound to have some stress. And I mean, you look at the divorce rates and it's kind of speaking to that. So I, I want to read an excerpt that I took from a research article and kind of get your opinion on it. So it, it talks about how couples are more likely to just discuss their prior sex lives and infidelities, infidelities, which I thought, well, then their prior history of money. In addition, researchers, our research rarely, our shows that we rarely talk about money in our first marriages. And if we do get divorced and marry again, money is the first thing, one of the first things we talk about. Mm -hmm. So my question is, why aren't couples talking about money? If we see Mm -hmm. that, like, okay, lived experience, we get divorced Mm -hmm. and we talk about it. Why aren't we talking about it when we enter into relationships? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think couples aren't talking about it for a number of reasons, but I think it's one is that it's it's the great taboo, right? Mm-hmm. We are taught from a very young age that it's impulse not nice to talk about money. So we have soaked up that information from the get-go from most places. Then we have also somehow in our culture decided that money is an inherently dangerous thing to talk about. It can cause a lot of arguments and it's decidedly unsexy. And we have this idea that romantic relationships need to be just that. They need to be full of fun and romance and joy. There's that word again. And money isn't any of those things. So why would we bring that into a relationship? Then we have this extra problem of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that is a lot of couples tell themselves that they don't talk about money in their relationship because it's going to be awkward or tense or it's going to end in an argument. Mm-hmm. And then what ends up happening is when couples have to talk about money, like when a couple, when one of them loses their job or when one of them has paid off their student loans and now they've got more money available, then when they do have to talk about money, the emotions are already high. And then we do get into an awkward or tense or uncomfortable conversation. And we go, oh, see, this is why we don't talk about money because all we do is fight about it. And so we have so much baggage leading up to it, which is why I think couples don't talk about money. And people always ask me like, oh, when when should people have the money talk? And I'm such an outlier. I'm like, day one. Mm -hmm. But um, in all sincerity, I think you know, if you are in a newer relationship, this, the money conversation comes up with all those other conversations that aren't super comfortable to have, but you have to have like, do you believe in marriage? Do you want kids? What are your thoughts about like letting my parents move in with us? Like some of those more uncomfortable conversations, money has to get discussed as well. Mm -hmm. A comment on that is not a comment, but my first date, well, I don't know if it was my first, maybe second or third date with my wife. There's this coupon book that we have in Canada that was like really good. And my parents always had it. And I just thought it was normal to carry a coupon book around. Yeah. And it was a buy one, get one free meal. And I just mm-hmm. whipped out the coupon book like to pay for the meal. Mm-hmm. And she's like, a coupon book? And she was totally cool. <laughs> and like in hindsight, just right now, it's coming to me that it's like I almost had a money conversation with her without yeah. having the conversation that she was totally cool with me whipping out a coupon book. Mm-hmm. That being mm-hmm. said, our 
we, we didn't talk about as much as we should. And <laughs> we, we, we've later felt that, but uh, it's just funny. Okay. So on this couples and money conversations, often I feel like people think the more money I'm going to make, mm. I'm going to get rid of these money problems. Mm, mm-hmm. Based on your experience with couples, what do you think if we could look at one or two ingredients to creating a, a healthy money relationship? What are one or two key ingredients? Is it make more money or is it something else? What do you think it is? I think it's feeling empowered. And I think you're so right that so many people think more money means I will be less stressed. More money will solve my problems. More money will stop fights with my spouse. But what we know is that once we hit that magical tipping point of having enough money to cover our expenses plus a cushion... Actually, we know scientifically that more money isn't actually going to make you that much happier, right? So yeah, that's one is just understanding that how much money coming in will bring you more happiness up to a point. But the other thing is that understanding that money is just a cover for so many things. We have so many associations with money. We have our our self-worth sometimes tied up in how much money we're earning or what our net worth is. And we have to untangle all of that. And so to me, it's like, there are really just a handful of building blocks about personal finance, which I know you know, and you you help your clients through. But once we understand those, that helps us to feel comfortable and confident in our relationship with money. So I do think it's important to have the basics of financial literacy down and understand the why behind your plan as a couple. Why, what is our five-year, 10-year, 20-year plan? Why is that important to us? What are the values that are in alignment with us? And that can help us as as a couple to feel good about our relationship with money. Mm-hmm. Wow. When you said like money is covering up something, we need to untangle that. Mm-hmm. I remember reading a paper about the symbols that money create. Mm-hmm. And it's going to our point about everyone has a money story. Yeah. But it, it is also a symbol for whatever we didn't untangle. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think just your verbiage is untangling those things can certainly help us like get together and like open up space in our brains to accept that, hey, uh, for example, my wife, her money story is this. And, and the other thing I just want to make a comment, you mentioned about just me being in like more of the, pl- you didn't say it, but I'm on the planning side. I genuinely though believe if more and more people are doing the work that you're doing is the inner work um, below the, the waterline, I think we all at some level have enough, I don't know, maybe I'm speaking out of term, but some level of enough financial literacy, or if we just see someone a little bit, we, we know to put money away. We know to do this. It's, it's mm-hmm. the reasons after being in this industry for over 10 years, we're not doing the simple things because of all of this untangled stuff that we're not uh, addressing. So I think it's so incredibly important that you're doing this work. And um, yeah, I just, I'm just kind of rambling right now, but it's just being on the side of the planning. It's just, and, and as someone who like, consume so much information and I didn't get it for a while. It's like, mm-hmm. I got to focus on this. I got to focus on this. I'm like, whoa, what, why am I chasing this piece of paper? Yeah. Or now it's like electronic on my computer screen. Yeah. Like, why am I chasing this? And yeah, I just think when we untangle all of that meaning that money provides us and we can separate ourselves from, as what you said, what money's covering up, we can just coexist with money and it is what it is. Yeah. I was looking at your blog and you talked about, um, We've kind of talked about this. I don't know if you have anything else to add, but you did a video on what are the keys to building a financially successful relationship. So you've talked about some steps that we can do. I don't know if there's more, but I also want you to define what a successful relationship means in your in your eyes. Yeah, to me, a successful relationship when it comes to money is being mm-hmm. able to talk about money in a way that is contained, meaning you're not doing these, these drive-bys it's purposeful, it is values-based, and it contributes more to your relationship than it takes away from Mm. your relationship. So that's what I think of when I think of a couple who's really successful in their relationship with money. Wow. Yeah. Like if we can all get to a level that we our money conversations contribute to our relationship, Mm -hmm. I think we'd be feeling pretty good about ourselves. Yeah. Now, on your site, you've mentioned that you you do work with high income earners. Mm-hmm. Tell us, the more money we make, are we going to be happy for those people who think it's going to happen? We kind of touched on this, but what do you think? I think up to a point, you will be, right? Yeah. There, There is undoubtedly a level of stress that can fall away when you are able to pay your bills without worrying about it, right? Mm-hmm. For, um, sure. for sure, there is that comfort, comfort and confidence in, in knowing that. Uh, but beyond that, 
if you think that more money is going to make you happier, you are mistaken. And I know that's such a bummer to hear, <laughs> but it's, it's just the truth. We have to figure out why we want more money. And I'm not opposed to making more money. I think all, yeah. you know, regardless of where you are, I think we could all use a pay raise. I think more money in hands of people people helps our communities. We are seeing right now when we stop earning mm -hmm. and spending money, everything goes to a standstill. We are all interconnected and we all need to be engaging with our money. So that's, that's my soapbox there. Yeah. No, um, I... So I work with high earning couples because of a gap I saw. Yeah. I saw kind of two ends of, of the spectrum. Again, I saw people who were kind of coming out of the mid middle earning or even higher earning, but they were still working really hard on paying down debt. So there's a lot of information there for those folks. And then there's a lot of information for folks on the very high end of things, right? You have your personal wealth managers, but for the people who are in the middle, right? They're mm -hmm. earning good money. They're, they're almost debt-free there isn't really a good place for them to go. And so that's why I wanted to help them, particularly because so many of them had internalized, well, once I hit six figures, all my problems will go away. Or mm -hmm. once I hit six figures, I'm going to stop fighting with my spouse. Yeah. And my job is to say like, you can be a human and have money, right? You can have yeah. a complicated relationship with yeah. money. And so that's why I serve that particular population. Yeah, really, you're right. That is kind of a area that sure they can go to the, and I'm not knocking this industry because it's mine, the financial planning industry, but we're going to manage their portfolio. Right, we're going right, to like right. tell them what their interest rate is. We're going to project this. We're not going to talk about those mm -hmm. relationships I think are so important because most of them have that fallacy that hundred thousand, no more fighting. Exactly. Oh crap. Mm -hmm. We're still fighting. Mm -hmm. So this uh, goes to uh, like you're talking about with your uh, clients, high income earners. And we've talked about up to a certain point, money can provide uh, a, a direct correlation between happiness, mm -hmm. security. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. And it's something that I always, I, I want to be conscious when I'm having conversations around money, because I realize the privilege that I have for my upbringing, my income and so forth. So first thing I want to talk about is you used to be, you got a degree in uh, sociology, right? Yep. Sociology and then social work. Mm -hmm. Social work. Okay. You did. You were work. Yeah. And I know for you, we're going to get to the volunteers, but right now there's a lot of frontline workers who are, yeah. we are heavily relying on. My wife's a nurse, uh, mm. your mom was, and we are relying on these people so incredibly much for like our well-being. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting that society has just like labeled certain industries, certain roles of you are worth this much based on the yeah. income. And like, I know it depends on where someone's mind's at, but if you went to a party and met a partner at a downtown New York City law firm, like for a lot of people to be like, oh, look at that guy. Versus if someone said like, I'm a state social worker. I don't know if there's such thing as those. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm assuming there is. Yeah. They might not get the same reaction, but yet like their contributions maybe aren't mm -hmm. any different. So mm -hmm. what is your thought on these mid-level uh, healthcare providers? And I believe you believe they should be compensated more. Yeah. Oh, a thousand percent. I think that all of our mid-level healthcare providers need a raise. For far too long, we have been told that it is you know, to get a touch political, it's women's work, right? And women don't deserve mm -hmm. to be compensated. We know that social workers, it's like 78% female. I imagine nursing is, is probably close to that. Um, though I know that there are more men getting into nursing now, but for so long, those have been women's jobs and women's jobs have not been compensated appropriately. And I think there's, it's super frustrating to me mm -hmm. because I think that there are mid-level healthcare providers in other spaces um, that are compensated well and aren't shamed for wanting to make a good living. You know, you look at physician's assistants or nurse practitioners and they're making good money and they are, and nobody bats an eye and says like, oh, they really shouldn't earn that. But when it comes to social workers, you know, I had an experience where I was making 50K and the healthcare system that I worked at demanded that I actually take a pay cut because mm. of how much money I was earning. Wow. I didn't, but there was a petition that went around the whole healthcare yeah. system saying that I deserved less because I was hired in um, at a higher rate than other people. 
So yeah, I think we all need to make sure that the folks who are on the front lines are being paid well because they need to be able to take care of themselves. They need to be able to make Mm -hmm. sure that they're able to pay their bills, that they can afford physical and mental health care themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I could go on and on about that, but I'll I'll leave it there. (laughs) I've actually... I've read and I can't, I, I really can't remember where, but um, people in the, I don't know if it was, I, I'm drawing a blank. It was either, I think it was psychologists, but female psychologist practices mm-hmm. felt bad for starting to make more money when they started doing it on their own. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I wasn't going to talk about this, but what, for anyone, if they're listening and they feel that, that feeling that, whoa, 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 like I, I've been like prescribed, so to speak, mm-hmm. to make this much like that 50,000, mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. am I doing making more? What would mm-hmm. you say to those people? I say to those people that that is a money story that is holding you back somewhere inside of you. You believe that good people shouldn't have money or that good people shouldn't care about Mm. money. And you need to start working on untangling that because it's only holding you back and preventing you from being able to serve more people and to serve the people that you are best suited to serve. In the schooling for for this field of work, do they talk about money and like building? Like, yeah, no, not even like, yeah. No, it could be almost like a, it could be like a, a, a degree or almost like a problem with the whole evolution of it. Like we're just naturally feel like I serve, I got to do it for like the yeah. good of my own well-being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the social worker code of ethics in the United States, there is a part that says that we don't do it for the money. Oh, <laughs> so is. it is. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's really built into the work. When I was being trained as a social worker over a decade ago, the only time we talked about money was in a death and dying class when we were learning Uh about like wills and trusts and power of attorneys. Now, thankfully, there are some programs dedicated to financial social work and financial literacy because we know, we know that if we aren't, you know, putting our, on our own oxygen masks, so to speak, Mm -hmm. we can't really care for others. And social workers do a good job of preaching self-care, but we don't do a very good job of preaching financial self-care, which I think is paramount. Yeah. Wow. So say there's a, a, a spouse listening who has a social care or health care. Like I'm just mm-hmm. thinking, I'm actually thinking myself right now is my wife, yeah. she's, she's working 12, 14 hours a day. Oh yeah. I'm stay at home dad right now. And in that same research article I was talking about, they had a quote that always stands out to me. It says like, mm-hmm. it, it talks about the dynamics now that female roles traditionally in a marriage were like in the 50s, 60s, like staying at home, running the house. Now, now we're having dual income families. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times the family system still expects them this is a quote from the research article, not direct, but I can't remember it exactly that, yeah. but to bring home the bacon, to fry the bacon, to put the bacon away and to make the husband feel or look good when he's eating it. Yes. So, <laughs> what would you say to someone like myself or someone else who has, maybe they're not in social, uh, like mm-hmm. a, a social worker or a nurse, but even like a dual income uh, yeah. family who has another spouse who like by the script of things was supposed to take care of the house. What would you tell a person like that? And I've just, I, it's fresh on me because like, wow, I have never had the insight that like being like the mother like of our kids, I never realized how much cognitive and emotional load that there's always on the household. Yes. So I have way more appreciation for my wife. So anyways, what would you say to people who have a spouse in that field? Oh, I love, I love that you're asking that question because it just demonstrates that you so much want to practice what you preach and take these steps towards having an equitable marriage. So I think a few things are just like verbal appreciations, right? Like letting her know, I'm so thankful that you do this work. You know, thanks for taking care of our community, acknowledging when that emotional labor is happening. Like, oh, thanks for, you know, hunting down the daycare provider. I know that was a ton of work or for, you know, calling around to make sure that our kids could eat, you know, everybody has allergies these days, but like the Mm -hmm. the right brand of something, right? So just really acknowledging it. And then also like asking, because I think women have been conditioned to not complain. So asking like, how can I help? What do you need help with? Mm -hmm. What would be helpful if I did? And asking it in different ways and phrasing it in different ways, because women have also been trained to be, to say things like, no, no, don't worry about it. I've Mm -hmm. got it. It's not a big deal. So to kind of gently push back and say like, no, I'm asking because Mm -hmm. all of this without me thinking about it. And I genuinely want to help. Please tell me what I can do. Right. Mm -hmm. So just reiterating and encouraging. And we know that as women start to earn 
more money in heterosexual relationships, they also start to take on more of the quote unquote feminine chores, (laughs) which is, you know, all this subconscious stuff that just happens. Do you think that's related to, wait, subconsciously, why am I making money? I'm going to go do something that like, here's this ding, ding, ding. ding. Yep. That's, something that's more feminine. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. So uh, something that you said, and I'm going to leave this because now it's turning into my own uh, feelings, but uh, <laughs> my wife is like just, and anyone who has a uh, a spouse in the well-being healthcare system, generally, I feel like their, their innate go-to is look out for other people. Yeah. And, and so like you mentioned about making sure they have good food, daycare, I know like specifically for me, my, my wife really focused on those things. And like mm-hmm. for me, it's like, yeah, you know, we'll get the neighborhood daycare and this and that. And I don't think I've just because I have never put that much attention to it. I probably haven't recognized her enough for doing that, even though there's probably a lot of like mental decision or going back to your decision fatigue that you talked decision about earlier, fatigue, yeah. that she oh, yeah. actually had to input to there despite all the other giving that she's doing in her job every single day. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Neat. Okay. So we're coming down to the time here, but uh, I, I wanted to touch on, on um, volunteering. So my wife has talked to me about this is like, how does your industry only serve people who have money, people of this and that and so forth. So I think it's great. And for me, I volunteer with, I'm a board member of junior achievement here in Edmonton in our Alberta. Mm-hmm. So that helps me feel good about providing financial literacy to that certain demographic. For yourself, you do some volunteering as well. I love your little statement here is that you volunteer to help with this program to break the cycle of generational poverty. So my question is, not just people in the financial services industry who are not mm-hmm. providing services to that bottom ring. What do you think people collectively can start doing to just break down the barriers in our system? We're talking about yeah. me and you, we, you know, you mentioned about your background. My parents both had degrees. I come from a very fortunate area and I struggle with money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If now, if we look at like, if the starting blocks are way behind us, right? what do you think the individual listening to this podcast can do just to do their part and break down that barrier to financial literacy? Yeah, I I love this question. And the reason I'm so adamant about separating volunteer work from paid work is because I think the lines tend to get blurred and tend to get muddy. The second we start saying like, oh, I'll waive that person's fee or, oh, I won't charge for this. We start devaluing our work, which is why I'm really clear about drawing that line and saying, I do charge for my services and I do charge a premium and I know they're not accessible to everyone. So this is how I give back. I give back Mm -hmm. in a different way. I have tried doing pro bono work a few times and unfortunately it has not worked out very well. So I made the decision that I'm, I'm not going to do pro bono work in that way, but I will give back every single week with mm-hmm. this particular organization. So that's just like one little thing about why I draw that differential. And then the other thing is that within our communities, we have to your point, we have so many opportunities to provide our education to others. So I'll often speak at different nonprofits here in my community to share with them like the basics of emotional and financial literacy, the basics of getting started with some of this stuff. I'll teach and coach other folks who are doing more of like the frontline financial counseling work with mm. people. So I like to give back in those ways where I can do like a one to many opportunity, whether it's a speaking or a training opportunity, that to me feels really good. And for everybody else, like you have to decide what works for you. Does putting out content like a podcast feel good? Does writing blog posts feel good? Does, you know, giving away one pro bono Mm -hmm. session for every 20 clients you see work? One of my friends is a financial advisor and she has a really interesting model where she charges people based on their income and she'll have a percentage Mm. of people that she'll take that don't pay. But she tells the people who are those higher earners and have higher assets under management, by the way, your fee is also helping, you know, two couples a month get um, financial planning services. So she has a model set up that way and that's what works for her. So thinking about what works for you, you know, what works for me is only what works for me. It's just an idea, but I think there are so many ways to give back without sacrificing again, our financial self-care. Yeah. I think that's a big part is not sacrificing our financial self-care, but being curious on which way, uh, we can help give back. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your book. Yeah. It's super cool that you're building or you, you created a book. 
in your blog, I found some statements that I just thought I wanted to talk about. And it reminded me of a quote from Epictetus. And the quote says, it's not what happens to you, but how we react to it that matters. Mm-hmm. And, and in your blog, you said, this is your first book signing. You're like, yeah. <laughs> my first book signing was a flop. This is so embarrassing. It's only people I know here. But then you reframed the entire mm-hmm. thinking when you saw some friends come in. Mm-hmm. In all of the work you do on that, like you can talk as this is an example, but I think that speaks to all the work that you're doing is you're helping shift the narrative in people's minds around money. So maybe just speak to the power of being able to reframe book launches, yeah. money or... Yeah. Oh, I love this question. So I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of the fancy term is a cognitive reframe or um, undoing a cognitive distortion. But there are things we all do where we say unkind things to ourselves like, oh, I'm so bad at money or I'll never understand mm. money. Right. And and again, we have to work on finding more positive language because that is going to kind of become, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I tell myself I'm bad at money, I'm stupid, I don't get it, then the likelihood that I engage with money is going to be very, very low. So I like to help people reframe, but I don't like to go from negative to positive. I like to go from negative to neutral to positive Mm. because a lot of the times in a lot of like the mindset work that you see happening right now, People go from like, oh, it was the worst day of my life to, oh, it was the best day of my life. And our brain cannot keep up with that type of jump. And what will happen is you'll hear people say things like, oh, I can't do that. That feels so cheesy or that feels so tacky or that doesn't feel authentic. And so helping people neutralize it and then work on finding the positive in things is a better bridge for our brains to kind of follow along. So instead of I'm terrible at money, I'm amazing at money going... I feel terrible at money. And at the same time, I'm consuming a few podcasts. I'm learning a couple of things on the way. I know I can work towards being good with money or something like that. That I I really like that because, you know, there's this whole, I've heard of this term called toxic positivity. Yes. Where (laughs) (laughs) I just read these things. I'm not trained like you on it. And and then it makes me think about it. I'm like, okay, like that makes sense to me. But how do you get there? But I really like how you laid that out is like negative to neutral and then you can get to positive. Right, right, right. Because you can see those people walking around. They're like, I'm so happy today. Are you really? You look- <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay. I got two last questions and these are kind of fire or quick answers. So in summary here, if uh, you could recommend a book to someone that helped shift it, your thinking, shifted the lens on how you see things, could be relationships, life or money or everything, what book would you recommend? For money, I really like The Art of Money by Barry Tesler, B-A-R-I. She is kind of the the godmother of financial therapy. So I really enjoy her. She does a lot of somatic work, which is body work, right? So checking in with how things feel as you engage with your money. Okay, perfect. And last question is, let's say we fast forward, I don't know how old you are, but until you're 90 years old and you're looking back at your life and you look back to whatever age you are now, what decisions do you think you made currently in your life that your 90-year-old self would be like, you know what? Thank you, Lindsay. I appreciate you did that. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think working for myself has been something that my 90-year-old self is going to be very thankful for. I tried working for other folks for a long time, and I'm the type of person who I like to do things my own way. I don't like when things go too slow, and um, it feels better for me. And I really enjoy the creativity and flexibility that I get from it, in addition to you know the financial benefit. And I'm really thankful that I took the launch to be self-employed. Yeah, I mean... That's a big, big launch and takes a lot of confidence. So good. <laughs> Glad you did because you. you have a great book. So why yes. don't you tell people where they can find more information about you? Speak about your book. I did order it. Amazon Yay. said it's going to come sometime in May. Oh well, back because I bought this toy for my kid too online and it was like May 15th and he's just like, that's so far. But anyways, where can they find more about you? And um, maybe speak just a little bit to the book. Yeah, and absolutely. Because I don't want to take up too much of your time. Yeah, right on. So my 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 brand, my company is called Mind Money Balance. So you can find the podcast, my Instagram, and my website are all of the same name, Mind Money Balance. And my book is the financial anxiety solution that really takes the same philosophy that I shared today in a book form to money. So it's all about our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviors about money and how to untangle 
untangle them so you can have a healthy relationship and engage with your money in a powerful way. And for anyone who finds me on a podcast like Sean's, if you go to mindmoneybalance.com slash podcast, there's information there that if you buy my book and send me proof, send you a free video training on values-based spending and saving that kind of give you a little bit more insight there too. Yeah. Great. I'm not just saying this, but as someone who's consumed so many investment books, saving books, automate this expense, automate that expense, I have not found so much value in the last like two years when I've been like looking at the behavioral side to these types of books. And my point is people should buy your book because uh, just based on this conversation (laughs) and the work you're doing from like the financial, like the therapy background, I think it's just it's going to allow people to start making those decisions that align with their values. Thank you. So, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, join me on Zoom. Yeah, and, this was uh, so fun. Good. Well, I hope you have a good day. And All right, uh, you as well. we'll chat soon. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Most Hated Effort Podcast. If you're enjoying the content, please leave me a review on iTunes. I greatly appreciate it. Well, Now it's time for me to get the F out of here.